Welcome back to Women in Product Marketing. I'm your host, Mary Sheehan with Adobe. Today's episode is with Liz Tassi, the head of global product marketing at Qualtrics. You may hear Qualtrics and think of surveys, but now they're on to new ventures. Liz shares what it's been like leading global PMM for one of their four new product lines focused on experience management. A huge aspect of her role is storytelling, and it's more than just evoking emotion. You need to back it up with business acumen too. Can't wait for you to listen. Women in Product Marketing is proudly supported by Clue. That's Clue with a K, the competitive enablement platform for all product marketers. This podcast is produced by Sharebird, the peer mentoring platform for product marketers. It is the place to discover on-demand resources to help you with product marketing. And if you have any feedback on our episodes, so things that you liked or things you want to hear more of, please send me a note on LinkedIn or feel free to email podcasts at sharebird.com. All right, let's do this. Hello and welcome to Women in Product Marketing. I'm thrilled today to speak with Liz Tassi, the head of global product marketing at Qualtrics. Liz is both strategic and an amazing storyteller, and she has such a vast range of experience. She spent 14 years at Microsoft in PMM prior to Qualtrics. She was working as a risk analyst at Deloitte prior to that. And she also had a tenure at the U.S. Department of Justice. Cannot wait to dig into her unique experience more. Welcome, Liz. So excited to have you here. Thanks, Mary. Thanks for having me. Of course. And I'd love to start out asking you, what is something that you've done lately that has scared you? Uh, Yeah, no, this is a good question. So interestingly, I recently did a keynote for our Work Different event that we had a few weeks ago. And while that keynote itself didn't scare me, when I reflect upon it, I used to be just terrified of public speaking. You get like the sweaty palms and the heart racing, even talking about it right now, I'm starting to feel like my heart beat (laughs) the way that it used to. And I'd be the one in the back doing like the power pose, sticking your arms out and getting big. And so it's just funny when I reflect upon still now getting up on these stages, we had our big X4 event a couple years ago where it was 5,000 people in the audience. And so it still kind of like scares me, but I'm able to dial down all of that physical response and get out there and do the thing. So yeah, just kind of a fun example of still scary, but maybe not as bad as it used to be. Well, you can't tell at all as someone who's watched you. I was telling you before the show started, you look like a badass. You seem super confident. (laughs) It's paying off. Any specific tricks besides the power pose that you would share that made you more confident? Yeah, I mean, for sure, the power pose, I still do that. And then for me personally, it is around one, certainly like practicing over and over. And I'll practice even for things that aren't super high stakes, but it's the three minute presentation for my all hands, right? So I I think that the practice helps me because then it just kind of feels a little more natural and authentic. And then I really just try to focus on what's the story I want to tell, because if I think about it in the terms of my story that I want to tell, it feels a lot more authentic and natural than getting up there and trying to represent content that isn't mine, right? So I'm writing my keynote. I'm trying to really live and breathe that story. And even that example was literally, that was my recycling pile at the end of my driveway that I was talking about. And that was my garage. And I think that really helps when you can find that authenticity to tap into. 
That is such a great piece of advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, I was actually wondering if those pictures were your actual garage yeah. and your actual recycling. Yeah. My neighbors had a lot of questions of like, why is she taking a picture of her recycling pile? Awesome. Well, I'd love to hear more about your role at Qualtrics. So head of global product marketing, can you tell us what that entails? Tell us a little bit about Qualtrics. would love to get started there. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, Qualtrics is a company that is, we actually created this category called experience management. So if you think of how organizations are trying to better understand how customers are experiencing their products and services, experiencing their brands, interacting with the customer, like or interacting with the organization, all those experiences, as well as experiences that their employees are having and helping organizations better understand them. And then then take actions that are going to improve those experiences. And then when it comes time, maybe where improvement isn't enough, how are you actually designing new ones? All with the goal of how do we go drive better customer retention, better customer loyalty. On the employee side, it's all about an engaged workforce, which has been super important right lately with COVID and everybody working from home. How do you kind of keep that employee productivity up? And so we're really focused on helping organizations understand those experiences where there's breakdowns and where they can go improve and design new ones. And then I lead global product marketing, which is, which is really exciting. I love product marketing. I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but my team is really focused on absolutely kind of understanding our customer needs, bringing to life all the great innovation that the product teams are building, making sure that we're landing a really strong differentiated message in the marketplace, and then taking kind of all that, but also really aligning it to strong go-to-market and business strategies. So how do we go effectively drive the business outcomes we care about, get the pipeline, get the revenue that's needed for the organization? Well, it must be such a testament to your team about the positioning of Qualtrics. I've known them for a long time, but I've always known them as a survey provider. Mm -hmm. So this is such a great pivot and to have this category creation of experience management, that is such a bigger value prop to Mm -hmm. a corporation. Did you have a hand in that repositioning or were you the one to execute it? Yeah, I mean, I joined, I think a little bit after we kind of launched the notion of XM, but that was really when we kind of established the different product lines and we moved beyond that. We're just a survey or a company or having the strong roots in academic, which is where we have a lot of great history. And so we launched these different product lines, customer experience, brand experience, product and employee. And so I came in leading the customer experience product line and really helping to grow that business. It's kind of insane how our annual targets when I started are now our quarterly targets as we think about the growth of that business. And then as the years progressed, we ended up bringing all of product marketing into one organization, which I'm leading, which is a lot of fun too, because now we can really start to get some good synergies across the product lines and really start to deliver on that integrated experience management vision that we've set for the company. So exciting. Well, really well done. You can see it come through in all of the Qualtrics assets as well. So really well done to your whole team. And you have a unique definition of product marketing. Can you share that? Yeah. So, cause I <laughs> think I got clued in when I kept running into, so what does product marketing do exactly? And it's true because product marketing can be this very broad discipline of people that are heavily kind of inbound focus and doing a lot of research and persona work to more outbound focus and a lot of the messaging and the storytelling. And so I sort of boiled it down to being the master of three truths. 
So the first is customer truth. So really understanding who your customer is, what they care about, what are they motivated by? What are the outcomes they're trying to drive? The second one is the product truth. So do you really understand what the product does and the value that it delivers? And how does that stack up to what the customer cares about? And then finally, the market truth. So what's going on in the marketplace? What are the trends happening? Again, COVID is another great example where we pivoted to really double down on digital and customer care as two use cases, because those were such a high priority for organizations due to the pandemic. And so taking all of those customer truths, product truths, and market truths, and pulling those together into that successful go-to-market strategy that's going to go drive those business outcomes. I really love that. That's a new flavor of the overlapping Venn diagrams that are usually focused Mm -hmm. on the stakeholders that you have, but this really brings it where strategy is in the hands of the product marketer aligning in all of these different truths. Mm -hmm. So that's a very refreshing take. I love it. And I know that you have experience in all elements of PMM, of course, being the head of product marketing, but I'd love to dive into two areas that I know are special for you, storytelling and business acumen. So let's talk about storytelling. Were you always good at storytelling? If not, how do you get there? What advice would you have? Yeah. Well, if you ask my parents, they'd probably say, yeah, she was always good at telling stories. <laughs> but in the context of business, I think it took some work. I think for me to translate the stories I would tell like in personal life and always like the hand waving and all the talking and, and energy I would bring there and figure out how to bring that into business settings. And the kind of things that I started to learn was one is how do you find that interesting emotional hook that can kind of set the stage? Right. And I think that was a big thing for me. I was always pretty good about this is a natural story arc and here's how you would kind of communicate these concepts. But it was more of that emotional hook that you brought people in and kind of the way that I would prepare and look for those is one, I would just listen to podcasts. Like, I don't know if you've ever listened to the, like how I built this. That one is just such a great like origin story of businesses. And you're like, well, that was really interesting or even customer stories. I mean, a story that I told a couple of years ago at an event was about one of our customers. They were on a vacation in India and for Diwali. And there was this horrible like fireworks accident and they had to be like airlifted to a hospital. And the first person they called was American Express, their credit card company. And so you kind of like tell this story and you kind of set that stage. And then that went into what does it mean to kind of cultivate that sense of loyalty and reliance on, on a company and how Amex handled it. And so kind of finding that emotional hook, I think has been a way that I've been able to kind of take the storytelling to the next level. And then again, as I said earlier, it's also just finding those things that can be personally relevant because that's where you can really bring the energy and make it feel really authentic. I love that. So maybe to recap, it would be looking at your own stories, being authentic with that, listening to great stories, like Mm -hmm. how I built this and understanding how those Genesis stories can really help be really powerful. And then also connecting the dots with an emotional hook when it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I recommend too, is if you're preparing for a presentation, and this can be, like I said, the three minute all hands presentation, or this could be the 15 minute keynote, but listen 
listen to the story you're trying to tell and put yourself in the shoes of the audience. And what are you trying to get across with them? And do you think you're landing that? Whether that's the sales organization, you're trying to inspire them about a new product or, or feature, or it's a customer audience and you want them kind of remembering the value and differentiation that you're bringing. That's such good advice. And I think people remember stories way more than they'll remember any statistics Absolutely. that you throw at them. So even with the example of your keynote, I remember your story. I don't remember the stats. Make that hook there. That's yep. great. And so leaning in a little bit more to the other PMM area of specialization, which I know gets more important as you get kind of higher up in the PMM mm-hmm. chain is business acumen. So what would you say PMMs need to know about their businesses and how do you get that information? Yeah, that's a good question. I think this is one of those areas where you'll probably find a lot of discrepancy in what people expect for PMMs to know. From my perspective and kind of how my team runs, we look at ourselves as business owners. And so what are the revenue targets for our product line? What pipeline then do we need in order to get that revenue? What are the conversion rates? Understanding how all those things might differ by region, by segment. And then, because that's going to help you go figure out out, what are those right plays to go and make a difference and make a change and go make up a gap in pipeline if you've got that. And to me, that's one of the things I love about product marketing is having that aspect of it along with all the storytelling and the creative aspects. And in terms of how to kind of get that information, and I think it's just spending a lot of time with the numbers people and people in your organization, with finance, operations roles, that's going to help you kind of get the data piece. I actually took a job when I was at Microsoft intentionally because I knew it was going to thrust me more into kind of the scorecard world and kind of have to be representing my business and knowing those numbers in order to kind of build that acumen. And so kind of recommend thinking about roles if you're looking to kind of build that skill to do that. The important part too is though, not just to have the numbers piece, like you've got to pair that with the real world perspective of what's going on right? And knowing the sales teams, right? Knowing the growth marketing teams and the demand gen teams so that you can start to understand like when things make sense and when things are looking kind of funny from a data perspective and knowing which levers should be pulled when. And so having that context along with the numbers is really important. And it probably ties into the storytelling component as well, I would imagine. So if you have data, but there's also insights and the story and how that all comes together and why that matters to your business, do you see the two overlapping in your world? Oh, a hundred percent. Right. And I think it's, yeah, what's the story and how are you connecting all the dots, but then also how do you use that data (laughs) to go get things done in the organization and being able to tell a story that leads the stakeholders that you're trying to activate to the action and the outcome that you want. And so that's important to, you have to understand the data in order to do that, but then you also have to be able to explain why does it matter? And what does that now tell us we should go do? That's really helpful. And switching gears a little bit, I wanted to go back to the keynote. So giving more context on this, this is a keynote about experience design. And you really talked about thriving during disruption versus surviving and how a lot of companies like Instacart and Peloton have really crushed it and (laughs) thrived during this time because they focused on customer insights. So you really tied it into this amazing product marketing angle, I thought, which was that they were looking at the insights 
life and were able to help the companies adapt and evolve to this change. So how would you recommend kind of tactically for PMMs that whether or not you have a a pandemic on your hands again, which hopefully we never ever do in our lifetimes, how do you recommend that PMMs drive this kind of change? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because there's such a great overlap with what Paltrix is trying to do as a company, which is help organizations be more customer centric, right? And so as PMMs, we have a really pivotal role in helping drive customer centricity within our own teams. And so to the extent that there is always on listening, whether it is through technology like Paltrix, or if it's through doing ride-alongs with your sales team so that you're talking to customers too and getting those insights, I think is really important. I think also looking outside of your core sphere of your industry and looking for inspiration elsewhere, like what's happening in other industries that might kind of indicate like, hey, this is interesting. Like maybe this could be applied in the space that I'm working and start bringing that type of content, those types of insights into your day-to-day conversations. I mean, it's not like such a huge leap, but if you think of one of the examples I talked about in that keynote was Volkswagen in Australia. And they did some market research that showed that actually 30% or more of customers were willing to buy a car without test driving at first. And so they stood up a e-commerce site and they're selling millions of dollars worth of cars now. And so you're like, okay, maybe we didn't think at first that selling cars online is the most logical next spot to go, but it worked for them because they had it backed by data and customer insights. That's great. Tying it back to your definition of the PMMs, bringing those customer truths, those market truths, bringing it in the product truths, the overlapping angle of it all together. Yeah, absolutely. And the more that you can just stay focused on knowing those customers in and out of like, what are they trying to do every day? What do they care about? What are their business problems? Like that's another one where I think there's sometimes, particularly in technology, where there's a tendency to get a little more at the feature level of like, I'm going to drive higher engagement, more people answering the survey or what have you. Well, they're only doing that to serve the end purpose of getting more insights from customers in order to then be able to take the right actions to go drive retention, go improve acquisition. And so really understanding what's hard for them today in terms of what they're trying to do, I think can then illuminate some new opportunities to maybe pivot or expand your current offering. That's such a good point. Finding the challenges and pain points and providing solutions versus the other way around. (laughs) Yeah. Like I have a solution. Let me go find a customer to buy it. Right. Let's really go figure out how can we really drive value for them and what they're trying to do for their organization. That's fantastic. And wanted to talk a little bit about outside of work. So you have an awesome LinkedIn article that you shared that actually talked about your big leap from this cushy, more predictable job (laughs) at Microsoft where you are for 14 years. I'm sure that felt really hard to leave, but you left Microsoft to join a growing company, Qualtrics, while being a single mom with two kids. And I think you also had to move locations during that. So, wow, that must've been a lot. And it's It's really inspirational to me that you did that. Can you share more about this decision and what went into it? 
Yeah, absolutely. I loved my time at Microsoft, hugely valuable. got to work on a lot of cool, different businesses. But in my mind, I was not going to leave just yet. I had two kids. One was in elementary, one was still in daycare. I was a single mom, Microsoft seven miles from my house. <laughs> just like, I can hang out here for another couple of years. And then the offer came along. Qualtrics reached out. It was certainly an interesting opportunity. I happened to know some of the senior leaders there. But what I really attribute sort of my ability to kind of even make that leap was a couple of things. I had over those last couple of years leading up to this moment had done a lot of work with just an amazing coach. Her name's Lakshmi Golbakrishnan. She's incredible. And she really helped me kind of work through a couple of things. One was just really understanding like what was my personal brand? Like what did I feel like my value prop is to an organization? And then spending time understanding what's energizing to me, what's draining to me, because some people love creativity and creating. And then when it gets to the process, it's like, oh, that's draining. And then other times people are like, I love fixing a broken process. And so really understanding that was super important to me. And that kind of helped to kind of create a roadmap, if you will, of like, where do I need to be? And what do I want to do to live my fullest self and really feel energized by the work that I'm going to do? And I think with that work, I had a lot of confidence in the decision. Like it was one of those things where I just honestly did not look back. Like I was like, I know that I'm going to go do this and it's going to be great. And if it's not great, that's okay too. Cause I've got this grounding that I know that I can go and I'll figure out what to do next. And so I think it was just really important to kind of do that personal brand work to get that foundation and just kind of having, like I said, a little bit of faith, like if it doesn't work out. That's okay. Cause we'll figure it out. That's great. That's so important to spend the time doing that because I think it's so easy to just jump haphazardly from one thing to the next. But if you can really be very focused on what it is you want to contribute, what your value prop is, like you said, I think so many more doors will open ultimately, even if it feels like you're in a limbo space, defining that brand, defining that vision yeah. statement for a while. So that's really cool that you did that. Yeah, absolutely. And it just gives you a good sense too of like when you start to kind of figure out what that, I don't want to say end destination because I feel like there's never an end destination, but I kind of got my head wrapped around like, yeah, I think a CMO is what I want to do one day, right? And then it's like, what are the types of skills I need to go get there that I don't have yet? And then you combine that with sort of like, yeah, what's the role need to look and feel like and the environment need to be like where I'm going to be able to bring my best self. And you can kind of bring those together and then you go evaluate those opportunities and feel really good about the decision you're making. That's awesome. I want to go back in your career a little bit and understand how a researcher for the Department of Justice and then a risk analyst at Deloitte, how did you become a PMM from that? Was yeah. this part of the plan as well? Uh, <laughs> of course it was. Yeah, no. <laughs> So I was an economics major in college, which is funny because my dad was like a lifetime economist for the federal government. Oh, wow. And I, I took economics in high school and I was like, how am I even related to you? Like, I just hate this talk, this subject. It's terrible. And, and then I don't know what happened, but when I went to college, I ended up in an economics class and had an amazing professor. And that can make such a difference who's teaching you the subject and actually really liked economics. And so I ended up majoring 
majoring in it. And then out of college, I had a job offer to go work for the U.S. Department of Justice. And it was in the antitrust division. And what's interesting is at the time, this was when the big antitrust lawsuit was happening against Microsoft. And I kind of joked, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go and beat the evil empire and thinking I'd never come anywhere close to the case. And sure enough, I was assigned to the lead economist on the Microsoft case. And I actually entered in an exhibit into the case that got data or evidence that Microsoft was using thrown out of the courtroom, which is crazy because flash forward a couple of years and where I'm working, right? And so it's really funny that the that sort of path happened. And I worked there for a couple of years and I started kind of thinking like, hey, don't think the kind of government academic economist type thing is for me. Like I want to go more into business and marketing, but it was hard to sort of like make that leap. And so I made like an adjacent leap into consulting. And so that's when I was doing the risk analysis consulting for Deloitte and Touche, which again, our customer was mortgage-backed securities with Ginny May, which then was interesting because in 2008, all of that came crashing down. All the biggest trends you were born of them. <laughs> And so then it was like, okay, this was all right, but still not where I want to be. And it was just really hard to kind of make that leap into business and in marketing kind of at the level that I wanted to be at without having kind of any of that experience. And so that's when I made the decision to go to grad school. And so I went and got my MBA at University of North Carolina. And I'm an East Coast girl, like lived in the East Coast my whole life. So I'm looking at companies that are on the East Coast to intern with a lot of CPG companies up and down the East Coast. And then I see this posting to the career site about Microsoft. And I was like, what the hell? I'll like apply and see if I can get an interview. Because at the time I was kind of thinking that maybe tech was going to be more my speed than CPG and got the phone screen. And then they were like, hey, come out. It was on a Tuesday and they're like, come out this Friday for the super day of interviews. So there was the long marathon of interviews on Friday. And, and then I got the internship. And, wow. and yeah. And so then I was like, okay, well, I'll go spend a summer on the West Coast, but I'm an East Coast girl. And I'll say the summer at Microsoft and I got that full-time offer and, and I thought, okay, well, I'll come out for a few years because I'm an East Coast girl. And now I've been out here 18 years this August and I'm living in the Seattle area. So I think it's safe to say I'm a, I'm a West Coast girl now. But yeah, it was when I came to Microsoft that I started product marketing and I've been product marketing or, or some version of it ever since. That's amazing. Well, we won't tell your East Coast friends and family that you're a West Coast girl now. <laughs> well, <laughs> Don't share the podcast. to move out here too. So now oh they're, they're West Coasters. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, awesome. This has been so fun. Let's go into the rapid fire questions now. Yeah. I'd love to understand, do you have any PMM mentors or who are your strongest mentors in general? Yeah. So mentors are kind of an interesting thing because I was reflecting on this and I would say probably most of mine are outside of, of PMM discipline, which I think actually makes some good sense just because of the cross-functional nature of our role. I already mentioned the, the coach that I work with, and that's been really more focused on leadership skills and managing through kind of all the organizational complexity. And as I said, just kind of helping me get a sense of that personal brand and what do I want to do when I grow up type of thing. Another one of my mentors has 
never been in marketing, which is really funny, but he's been very much on the front line with customers and like customer success roles. And he just really helped me be a better business leader. So that's where I felt like I even just accelerated even more on the business acumen side. And then a final one, it does actually have a PMM background and he's just the master storyteller. Uh, and that's where I think I probably learned the most in terms of that storytelling of like that emotional hook and how do you kind of set like the context for the story, but also when to storytell, which is almost always to what we were saying before around whether it's presenting data and trying to rally the troops in your organization in a direction, or if you're on a stage for a keynote. And so I've definitely learned a lot from him, but I think it's good to have a mix and have them in and outside of the discipline. Agreed. That is a really great connection point. And it's cool to see all the different parts of your expertise is, is all reflected actually in your mentors as well. What would you say has been one thing that has been the most important in terms of growing your career? Yeah, I mean, I think it is kind of back to that personal brand work. Just at the end of the day, you've got to have a really clear understanding of your unique value prop. And so you can help, you can find those roles that you're going to feel like you're driving impact and that you're going to grow and shine. And I think, like I said, the confidence to take those leaps and take on those big new challenges. I think that's probably been more important than anything. When I think back to the decision to go to Qualtrics and what a huge leap that was, It'll be four years this September. I feel like those, it's been eight years worth <laughs> of learning and growing crammed into those four years. So, and I just couldn't have done it without really having done some of that work. That's so awesome. Thanks for sharing. What about networking? Is that something you do? Is that something you've done virtually this year? <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> this one is hard for me, I will admit, because I'm basically a social introvert, right? Like I can be good in social surroundings, but it's draining and just reaching out kind of randomly is definitely not something that I feel kind of comfortable with. But a good piece of advice I got once was it's actually okay not to have the set agenda. Like it would stress me out because I'm like, well, why would I say set up time randomly with this person? And do I need to like have an agenda set and just kind of grabbing the time and being like, Hey, I just want to know what's top of mind for you. And what are the types of things that you're working on and the types of challenges that you're tackling? And, and then you start to kind of find the points that then kind of build and grow in terms of like what the networking is sort of going to deliver on. So that's been helpful for me to just sort of release a little bit of the stress of it. And then I try to certainly regularly engage with folks across the company. Again, not with any set agenda, but just the like, hey, let's grab coffee and tell me more about what you do and what's your story. And then keeping in touch with old coworkers. I find that that's a good way to then find new connections because you have that person in common. And so when you're catching up with your old coworkers and talking about what you're doing, and then you're like, oh, you should talk to so-and-so that I know. I find that that works really well for me versus trying to kind of reach out randomly. That's such a great idea. Yeah. The plus one effect. Who else can I talk to? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think for on your mentor question, I think that's another way to think about it too. I don't think you just have one mentor, right? You want to have multiple like, that are helping on different areas that you want help on and like putting that out there, right? Like talking to other people and saying, Hey, these are three things I'm working on and I'm looking for mentors. If you know of any, like, let me know because it allows for there to be more focused recommendations versus just kind of vaguely putting out, like I'm looking for a mentor. So it's a good way to kind of activate the network to help with the mentoring piece as well. That's such a good point. We'd love to have one more question for you. Yeah. Why product marketing? 
<laughs> yeah, it's fun. I love it. Right. You know, I just feel like it's a great combination of the creativity because I love creating. And so the storytelling, the messaging, even creating strategy, like it's a creative element of like, how are we going to go take this to market? Or how are we going to go tackle this competitor? Or how are we going to go win in this segment? And so thinking through all those go-to-market plans, the sales plays, campaigns, all of that. And then I love the business aspect, right? The numbers and the pipeline and revenue and seeing that impact of the work that you're doing. I love that you get to work with so many different people. I've got so many great colleagues across sales and product and marketing and the partner team and engineering. And so I don't think you get that kind of exposure in many other roles. And then, you know, finally, it's, I think about the role that PMM plays in an organization. It's just really central to driving predictable, scalable growth for a company. So especially when you think about like an earlier stage company. So when I joined Qualtrics, we were at 1400 people, we're at 4,000 now. PMM is just so core to like, how do you kind of get that hockey stick growth and being able to kind of look back and see that, you know, those big impactful initiatives, like I did that, we did that as a team. So that's why I love it. Why I've been sticking with it for so long. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, it was so lovely talking to you, Liz. Thanks so much for all of your golden nuggets of wisdom. Really appreciated having you on the show today. Well, thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. Awesome. Thanks. Women in Product Marketing is proudly supported by Clue. That's Clue with a K, the competitive enablement platform for all product marketers. This podcast is produced by ShareBird, the peer mentoring platform for product marketers. It is the place to discover on-demand resources to help you with product marketing. And if you have any feedback on our episodes, so things that you liked or things you want to hear more of, please send me a note on LinkedIn or feel free to email podcasts at sharebird.com. That wraps another episode of Women in Product Marketing. Be sure to subscribe and share Women in Product Marketing with someone you think will love it. Next week is last episode of season two, and I speak with Seema Haji, the area vice president and head of platform and industry marketing at Splunk. Thank you for all of your support and catch you next week.